So um, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we'll be. And if you happen to have uh, the Bible app, that would be helpful to you. We'll be using the Bible app as we're talking about David and Bathsheba today. But your Bible's just as good. <laughs> In fact, it's uh, every bit as good as the Bible app. It'll have all the data you need. I was reading an article this week about seatbelts. That's what the picture is on your screen. It's a seatbelt there. Uh, some people don't like seatbelts at all. I can remember when they became law in Pennsylvania, you had to wear one. I actually started wearing it a year in advance because I saw that law coming because I'm the kind of person, if you tell me I have to do it, I don't want to do it. But if I'm doing it on my own volition a year in advance, it isn't as hard for me, right? I guess a lot of people are that way when it comes to seatbelts. They don't want to wear them. There's a gentleman uh, who lived in New Zealand. His name was Ivan Sedgden. That's a great name, Sedgden. And Ivan Sedgden hated wearing seatbelts. And he found himself in a period of five years, do the math on this, in five years, Ivan got 30, 30 tickets for not wearing a seatbelt. Now, do the math on that. That's one every other month. And I don't know how much it was for the uh, tickets, but it became costly for him. And so Ivan decided, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix this problem I have. So he got a piece of the seatbelt, and he tacked it up. He kind of pinned it up to the headliner in his car so it would hang down over his shoulder so that if a police officer happened to see him, that officer wouldn't know he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. saved him a lot of money. It worked great for that. But something happened along the way. Ivan found himself involved in a low-impact, head-on collision. It was low-impact, and had he been wearing a seatbelt, he probably would have had maybe a bruise across his shoulder. But because he wasn't wearing his seatbelt, he went into the steering wheel, and he was killed. Whew! What kind of sermon is this, Pastor Steve? I'm not looking for these downer sermons. Well, it's just an illustration. It's an illustration of this. There could be a lot of things behind Ivan's wanting not to wear a seatbelt, But I'm willing to guess that one of them was arrogance. Maybe an arrogance that said, well, other people have to do that because they drive poorly. But I drive very well. I don't need a seatbelt. Or maybe it was arrogance that said, you know, all the physics behind the seatbelt thing, I think you're safer even without one. And I know more than those physicists. I don't know what the root of his arrogance was. But I, I do know this. I know that his arrogance cost him dearly. It cost him dearly. Now, as we look at the story of David and Bathsheba, um, I I want you to look for that, that word arrogance. In fact, I'm going to show it to you in living color as we look at it. Because I think that arrogance is a huge factor in our Bible story this morning. Your Bibles are open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Scripture tells us it's springtime, and David, who's now king, is a little bit restless. And so he's unable to sleep, perhaps, and we'll pick it up in verse 2. Follow along. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So Laurel and I went to Israel. Uh, We were blessed by God to be gifted a trip to Israel a number of years ago. And when we were there, the tour guide said, we're going to go to the palace of David. Of course, it's no longer standing, but we're going to go to where we understand that this palace would have been. And he took us in the bus. We went up this hill. And we're kind of on top of this hill in a city, and you can kind of look down. We all got out of the bus, and we all looked down. And as you'd look down, you can look down on 
I don't know if you've ever been on Mount Washington in Pittsburgh. Have you been there? And, and on the incline, and, and you look down, it's like, wow, look at down there. Well, it wasn't that steep, but you had that vantage point that you could look down on the top of other properties. And you could see people, you know, with their cars. You see cats going here and there, people out on walks on their bicycles. You could see into their backyard. It looked more like a court. It always had a high wall around it, and you could see on top of their buildings and so on. That is a vantage point that David has from his palace. And he sees Bathsheba. And he takes action. Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That might seem like an odd sentence to be there, but we're going to refer back to that in verse 4 later today. And then she went back home. Let me read that again, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her, and then she went back home. Wow, that happened fast, didn't it? I mean, just like that. And then the very thing that a normal person would kind of fear, that's what comes to pass. Look at verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And David, he's got to cover his tracks. So he calls her husband, Uriah, who happens to be on a battlefield fighting on behalf of the armies of Israel, fighting along with the armies of Israel. And he says, I'd like Uriah to bring me a report of how the battle's going. And he expects when Uriah comes home that he'll probably sleep with his wife before he returns to battle. Take a look at verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace And a gift from the king was sent after him. It's clever. David's thinking he's got a clever plan here. Uriah's going to spend a night with his wife. And when she delivers a baby eight months from now, hmm, they'll just call it a premature birth. I'm golden. I'm golden. I got it. But in verse 11, Uriah doesn't play ball. Look at verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark, that is the ark of the covenant, the ark... And Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go into my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Wow, what a man of honor, right? You just got to respect Uriah. Well, if you're David, you're thinking desperate times, call for desperate measures. Not this desperate, though, David. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. And that's exactly what happens. That's what happens. And when David finds out, when he's informed of it, when the person comes to say Uriah has been killed because Joab sends a message, David's response in verse 25 is so casual, it is nothing short of despicable. Look at it. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, do not let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage, encourage Joab. In other words, you win some, you lose some. So Bathsheba grieves. And eventually, she becomes David's wife. In verse 27, it says, After her time, the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done, 
displeased the Lord. I want to say this is one of those this is one of those Bible stories where it's kind of easy to miss the point. So I kind of want to maybe set the story straight, address some wrong things I've wrong emphases I've heard about this story before. I grew up in church and I heard some of these stories from teachers and so on there, and uh, I became especially familiar with this story when I was in Bible college. And here's why. Because young Christian men in a dorm in Bible college have the courage to wrestle with some concepts that my roommates at the university didn't really want to wrestle with at all. And one of those concepts dealt with sexual sin, with lust. And so David and Bathsheba, this was a pretty relevant story to those young men in Bible college. But upon further review, this is not a story about lust. That's what we were talking about in Bible college, lust. This isn't a story about lust, at least not primarily. I mean, there's lust in it. But saying that this is a story about lust is kind of like saying the American Revolution is a story about the price of tea in Boston. (laughs) Well, it is, but it isn't. This is not really a story about guarding your eyes, although I've heard it presented that way. We need to guard our eyes. I mean, there are times you need to pick up the remote and change the channel. There are times you need to close the browser. Back when pornography was something you had to buy in a store, a buddy of mine named John, we were going into a store, we were shopping for something, we were in a mall. I said, let's go in here. He said, I don't go in that store. Why? He said, they have a wall with magazines on it. I don't go there. He's guarding his eyes. It's not a bad idea. It's even a biblical idea, but that's not the point of this story. Not at all. It's not what this story is about. Additionally, this is not a story about the importance of modesty, although I've heard it presented that way. The Bible talks about modesty. But this is not where the story is going at all. However, while we're thinking about modesty and Bathsheba, if you don't mind, I'd like to just take you on a little drive down a rabbit trail. Can I do that for a second? Okay. Notice I didn't say a walk, I said a drive, because it's a really highly populated rabbit trail. (laughs) At least it has been in my experience. I want to point something out. It's one sentence. This is not Bathsheba's fault. Now, before you wonder, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is she doing out there naked? What is she doing out there naked bathing, Pastor Steve? I think maybe she's got a little bit of blame here. Let me remind you of something. There was no indoor plumbing in Israel. Everyone bathed outdoors. Everyone. And the Bible kind of gives you a clue about why she's bathing at this time. Did you notice what it said in verse 4? It had to do with a biological, with a biological wonder that occurs about every month or so for women her age. It's a biological issue. That's why she's there. It's not Bathsheba's fault. And do you notice that she's bathing at night? I want to tell you, I've been in the Middle East many times. It's hot there. I go to Albuquerque, New Mexico quite frequently. It's cold there. But the Middle East, it's stinking hot. And if I was ever going to have somebody pour water over top of me, it would be in the middle of the day. I think about 1 o'clock. That would be the time I'd want it. But Bathsheba is doing it at night. You know why, right? Because she doesn't want everybody to see. It would be less likely that anyone is going to see me. This is not Bathsheba's fault. In fact, Bathsheba has very little choice in the matter. You know, the U.S. military prohibits, I looked it up, I'm just going to read it to you, prohibits personal relationships between officers and enlisted personnel that are unduly familiar. I love that phrase, unduly familiar. Why? 
because it might be kind of hard to say no to someone who outranks you, right? And that question is relevant. How do you say no to someone who outranks you? How does Bathsheba say no to the king of Israel? One author remarked, he clearly had the power to kill her husband and end her life. She had no choice. As I look at scripture, I see no reason, biblically speaking, to give her any blame. The scripture doesn't portray her in a negative light. It never includes counsel for what Bathsheba should have done here, let alone a rebuke for her. This is not Bathsheba's fault. Thank you for allowing me to go down that rabbit trail. Come on back with me to the main point because I want to say to you, the point of the problem here is this issue of arrogance. Arrogance. And I'm going to list several indicators of arrogance in David's life. And as I do, hear this. As I list these, I don't know, there's maybe eight of them, indicators of arrogance. I want you to ask yourself and to say to the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, show me, is this in my heart? Is this in my heart? Because that last sentence of chapter 11 is very sobering, where it says the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so let's keep going on a story. God sends Nathan the prophet to David with a story. Let me say this before we go to the story. There have been times when I've had to go to speak to someone concerning a sin in their life. I hate doing that. I hate that. It's like one of the worst parts of being a spiritual leader, to have to do that. And I want to say to you that every time I've had to do that, I pray a lot, and I think about, and this is what I want you to hear, exactly what I should say. I mean, I think it through exactly what I should say. And so as we're reading Nathan's words here, you're not reading the words of someone that God said, hey, go talk to David. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, and just walked out and did it. He's given some serious thought to this, and so his words are probably pretty precise. Follow along as we go at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb he bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. Okay, I'm going to give a spoiler. I'm going to give a spoiler. That, that rich man is the king. It's David. Okay? And, and the, the poor man is Uriah the Hittite the guy who was killed. And the little sheep, that's Bathsheba. Okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from asking, I'm sorry, from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare the meal for the traveler who had come to him. And thus, we begin to recognize that arrogance takes whatever it wants. This is one of the characteristics of arrogance. Bathsheba belonged to another man. But that doesn't matter to David. He wants to hang on to his own sheep, and he wants to use that one. Why? Arrogance. He isn't willing to pay the cost for his very own want that he has in his heart. He would rather remain comfortable and have someone else pay the bill here, and he'd rather use use someone else, them, their property. It doesn't matter. Arrogance takes whatever it wants. And arrogance seldom looks into its own heart. You could say that arrogance kind of looks right through the beam that is in both eyes and sees other people's problems instead. 
David actually seems to be aghast. Look at verse 5, what he says, or what it says. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this much must die. Do you hear the moral indignation there? As surely as the Lord lives, he states in an oath, this man must die. And then in verse 6, he says something that initially struck me as odd. Look at verse 6. It says, he must pay for the lamb four times over. That's a hard thing to do if you're dead, right? So he's not going to kill him. But he says, this man must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Here's what's going on there. The law of God, which evidently David is familiar with, says that if you get caught stealing one head of livestock, that you have to pay the person back with four heads from your own flock. Four head of livestock to pay for the one. And so when David says he has to pay back four times over, he's saying, we need to keep the law of God. And arrogance, it's doggone religious. It doesn't look at its own heart. I gotta wonder about Nathan, right? Because if I'm Nathan and he says he will pay for that four times over, I would be tempted to say something like this. Oh, David, I see you're really interested in, in the law. You're referring to Exodus 22, of course. You might be interested to read what it says two chapters before that. Have you looked at Exodus 20? Because there's a group of commandments here. There's 10 of them. You may have heard of them. See, that's why I'm not Nathan. I'm so sarcastic, right? You may have heard of these commandments. Maybe you heard of number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Or perhaps you read number six, you shall not murder. Or maybe even number 10, which says you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. Do you remember those, David? David should have seen all this. But arrogance seldom looks at its own heart. Eventually, arrogance becomes so natural that sometimes you need to be shocked out of it. I believe that when Nathan says the next sentence to David, it must have just pushed him backward. I mean, I would have physically stepped back and maybe fallen in my chair. Because David has just said, he will pay back four times for this. And Nathan says in verse 7, you are the man. What? Nathan said to David, you are the man. And Nathan shows us in the words that follow that arrogance does not appreciate blessing. If you look at it, in verse 7, in the middle of it, it says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul's. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. And what God is saying is, How can you not have any sense of gratitude? How can you be so arrogant? How can you feel so entitled? And arrogance, it feels that way because arrogance makes itself its own authority. It makes itself its own God. There is a subtlety to this that you might not actually see it but one of the most important concepts, this, one of the most important concepts, is discovered when you start to ask some questions about the sin of David. For example, who did David sin against? If you ask the man on the street that question, after telling them this story, they would say Bathsheba. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Who else? Well, her husband, Uriah. Yep. Who else? Um, 
Maybe Joab? Because Joab's an accessory to the crime. Joab, he, he sinned against Joab. Yeah, I think so. Who else? Oh, he's the king of Israel. Maybe he sinned against the people of Israel. How about that? Yep. Who else? I don't know. Who else? God. God. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you might know that Psalm 51 is a psalm written by David. And the, the header on that psalm says, this is a psalm of David written after Nathan had confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. In that psalm, in verse 4, he says something that could be somewhat puzzling. He says these words, against you, God, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that sounds kind of odd. Against God only you've sinned? What about Bathsheba? What about Joab? What about Uriah? What about Israel? What about everybody else? David knows that. But when he says that sentence, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David is saying that ultimately all sin is against God. He sinned against God. And Nathan really bears that out in the passage we're looking at because if you look at the start of verse, 10, verse 9, rather, it says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in his eyes? And then in verse 10, you find these three words that God says, you despised me. How do you do that, David? Arrogance. I made myself the authority. And the story goes on and you begin to see that arrogance just tramples. It steps on others. In the next part of verse 9, Nathan says, speaking for God, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. How do you do that, David? How can you think it's okay for you to kill someone else and take his wife as your own? Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. An arrogant son of a gun. Can I say that in church? The elders might get me for that, right? We'll talk Wednesday, man. It's shameful. It is shameful because arrogance behaves shamefully. In the last part of verse 9, God says, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Why would he bother to say that? Why would he bother to say you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites? Because the Ammonites are the enemies of God. You killed an innocent man with the sword of the enemies of God. You killed an innocent man with the sword of the enemies of Israel. You killed an innocent man with the sword of a pagan. Wow. No wonder arrogance is such an affront to God. And no wonder arrogance has consequences. The consequences are rough. They're listed starting in verse 10. It says, Now, therefore... The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. You see, God took David's arrogance very personally. And all the pain, if you know the life of David from this point on, you know Camelot is done. It's done for him. And all the pain and all the heartache and all the grief and all the turmoil that besets David's household for the rest of his days on earth springs from this point of arrogance in his life. Look at verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, 
I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. That was his son who will do that. Next verse. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And at that point, David has to be broken. I think he is broken. I think his next words demonstrate the opposite of arrogance. That his next words demonstrate humility, brokenness. They're words of confession. And I seem to have read somewhere that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at the next verse, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Short, sweet, honest. And God honors that brokenness, that humility. In the middle of verse 13, it picks up and says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child of Uriah's wife that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And in the end, the child dies. Now, I want to share something personal with you. Not to worry, no details. (laughs) Frequently, I feel that I have been, I feel that sometimes I am no less arrogant than David. How about you? I mean, can you for a moment overcome any arrogance that might be welling up in your heart to protect you and blind you from who you really are and what you're really dealing with? Can you see past that blindness? Can you see elements of arrogance in your own heart? Because if you can't, this passage has little to offer you. But if you can This passage can help you and be a great starting point for you on how to begin to remove arrogance from your heart. And it's kind of a matter of changing how you view some things. I didn't write this in my sermon. I told it this morning, though. It's just a personal example of my own arrogance. I can remember uh, when I was in my first ministry, I'm talking to an older pastor. I mean, he's probably in his 70s, and I'm in my late 20s. I was so arrogant. And I'm talking to this old guy, and he says, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, I happen to be doing a series on marital sexuality. I'm talking about that. He goes, what? This old guy looks at me, what? What? What?" I said, well, you know, there's a lot of sexual promiscuity. There's pornography. Have you seen the Internet? You know, and I I just want to talk about that, that. What does the Bible say about that? what are you preaching on? And he said, the cross. That's all I ever preach on. And I thought, no wonder every church you've ever had has been like 40 people, you dummy. How can you be so stupid? That is what my arrogant heart said. I want to tell you, that guy was right on. He was right on because, listen, the only remedy to any of our spiritual problems is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only remedy. 
the cross. And change comes when you look to the cross. As you look to the cross, God actually helps you adjust the way you view yourself, which is a really important thing to, to do. I have this thing that I say, and it's kind of a joke between my best friend and me. My best friend says, you say that too much. My best friend is my wife. <laughs> when I see someone who's caught in sin, when I see someone who's screwing up their life, when I see someone, I'm like, what is wrong with you? How can you be that person? I say this to myself. They're caught in sin, right? They're messing up their life. And I look at them and I say, there, except for the grace of God, goes Steve Shields. How do I know that? Because of the cross of Christ. There, except for the grace of God, go I. Helps me see myself accurately. And remember, that's a problem that arrogant people have, seeing themselves accurately. When you look at yourself with your mind on the cross of Christ, you realize who you really are. I am someone who was lost in every way. And I am someone who God loved anyway. And I am someone for whom Christ died specifically. And I am someone who found forgiveness in Christ freely, simply by asking for it. And I am someone who has been given the Spirit of God to live inside of me freely and openly. And I am someone who lives a life of gratitude, loving God and loving people as a result. The cross shows me that. The cross of Christ helps you see who you are, and it begins to remove arrogance about who you thought you were when you look at the cross. And second, when you look at the cross, it adjusts the way you view God. A.W. Tozer said, that's probably one of his most popular quotes, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's a great line, isn't it? That's a great line. We really can't be sure how David viewed God and how that played into this situation. But we can say this, that often the arrogant live however they want to, believing either God doesn't mind or God does mind, but he'll adjust. And David would say to you, God does mind and he doesn't adjust. And the cross shows you how God feels about sin. So, <laughs> back in the 70s, I used to wear a necklace. I wore a lot of them. I don't do that anymore. If you do, more power to you. I'm not a jewelry kind of guy. Uh, you see people wearing crosses on their necklace. I had one on mine for a while, and that's fine. Maybe crosses on your earrings. That's cool. Probably if I wore earrings, I would have one with a cross on it, right? Maybe two. <laughs> so silly, isn't it? I mean, it's not silly to wear earrings if you're doing that. That's cool, but it, it just wouldn't fit on, on me as a person. A cross, though. Do you ever think how weird it is that we wear a cross? Because I want to tell you, to anyone who's ever seen one in operation, they would think we are out of our mind for putting that as a fashion statement. What is wrong with you? You know that when we see people outside of Jerusalem hanging on a cross, we avoid that area. Not just because it smells bad, but because that is horrendous. I mean, we're not talking about being euthanized. This is not some kind of a, 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 a shot that they give them to put them out of their misery. This is a torture device. 
why in the world would you wear that? If you wear it, keep wearing it. That's all. I'm not making that point. Here's the point I'm making. That when you look at God through the cross, you see that God is incredibly serious about the sin of humankind. Because Jesus is atoning, Drew said it this morning, for our sins on the cross. He is paying for our sins on that cross. And, uh, yeah, he hates those sins. But he freely gives himself on the cross. So you have this God who hates sin. He hates what David did to Bathsheba. Don't we all? And yet, he gives himself to pay for that. Who would do that? Isn't it interesting when Paul writes of this to the people in Philippians, he speaks of Jesus as someone who humbled himself. And that happens to be the opposite of arrogance. Humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Hmm. The cross shows me that God takes sin seriously. The cross shows me that God has the grace to cover for my sin. And those two elements, they work to extinguish the arrogance in my heart. Look at the cross to adjust your view of yourself. Look at the cross to adjust your view of God. And look at the cross to adjust the way you view others. I have this other saying that I say. I'm trying not to say it as much because it isn't as healthy for me. It goes like this. Huh, did you see that? The humans. I don't understand the humans and I can't figure out why God loves them. That's what I say, right? I feel like it's a little bit humorous, but it's a little over the top for me. Because when I'm looking at people without looking through the eyes of the cross, it's really hard for me to be gracious. C.S. Lewis said, you never really talk to a mere mortal. And what he's saying is people are valuable. Incredibly valuable. And arrogance ignores that. Arrogance uses people. David used Bathsheba. David tried to use her husband. David used Joab. And the cross stands against that because the cross says those people, David, have immeasurable value before God. He would give his life for those people. And John 3.16 shows us that. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that all the world might be saved through him. And when you see people through that lens, it helps you shed that arrogance that you have. The humans. I understand the humans. I love the humans. Dropping the arrogance. It's really healthy. When you give thought to the reality that Christ died for you and died for the world, it removes a huge chunk of arrogance from your life. It replaces arrogance with humility. And humility, it's a beautiful thing. When you watch an athlete and he's done a great thing on a field and they're interviewing him afterward, he said, yeah, that's kind of the stuff I like to do. You're kind of like, oh, I wish I hadn't seen that. But when he behaves with humility, you're like, I really like that guy. Why do you like that? Because humility is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. Humility is the embodiment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And humility is what makes you shine beautifully in his presence. You can choose to lay aside arrogance. You can choose to do that by the power of the Spirit. If you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. And by the power of the Spirit, you can say to God, I want to lay aside this arrogance. Show me how to do that. And he'll do it. And the way I know that is because the scripture says in John chapter 4, verse 10, 
In verse 9, it says, God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord. And he wouldn't tell you to do that if he wouldn't give you the power whereby to do that. And you find that power when you look to him, when you look to the cross. I hate talking about my arrogance. In my sermons, I try to just show myself as clearly as I can because I feel like that's helpful to connect with you and it helps you to be willing to look at your own self. But this sermon has been painful for me to preach because I hate my arrogance with all my might. I hate it. Don't you hate yours? Wouldn't you love to be rid of it? Or do you like that fake seatbelt you got hanging down there? (laughs) I don't like that. It's useless. I don't want to hurt others. You don't want to hurt others. I don't want to distance myself from God. You don't want to distance yourself from God. I want to walk near him and honor him in humility because of the cross. As I pray that I can do that, would you pray with me that you can do it as well? Let's stand together. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for your great grace for us. We confess our arrogance to you. It is such an obvious thing when we pull off the blinders. And it is such a painful thing to admit. It's hard to admit we're arrogant because we're so arrogant about being arrogant. (laughs) As we confess it to you, we trust you to forgive us. Because we confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But those of us that are standing here today with our hearts open before you, we are so thankful for that cleansing, but we want more than that. We want your sanctifying influence. Yes, God. We want to be rid of this arrogance and to walk in humility. May we do that by the power of your spirit that was given to us by the redemption provided in the atonement of Christ at the cross. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.